Uh, Will Witherington, you obviously know me. Conrad, Candace Davies, they'll introduce themselves a little bit more to you. Uh, but this is kind of the idea behind these seminars was to create a, a space to have conversation about areas where it's uh, most challenging to love someone who's different than you. And so uh, what we wanted to do is bring sort of the, the, the counterparts of that. So me kind of being from the majority ethnic culture, them from a minority perspective. Um, but what we've chosen to do in the way we're going to do this is, is Conrad has actually given this a lot of thought. I mean, well, I have two, but from a uh, movement standpoint, and he'll explain that, their, their, their family vision, their, uh, their personal vision, their ministry vision, what they're doing in the city for this racial, ethnic uh, unity is, is, is pretty, pretty stimulating, to be honest. And so we've connected over this, and so what we decided was they're going to they're gonna launch out into some uh, frameworks for us to, to, to think about this, and then I'm going to add some majority uh, story perspective. They're going to add some minority story perspective to give that sort of thing, and then we'll give some applications. We're going to try to leave this as tangible as we can. What do I do with this material uh, going forward? So we're going we're to give you that, and we can, we can email you our notes because we've got links uh, to websites, links to sermons, links to uh, podcasts. We got all kind of information. We can we can send this out to you uh, if you want us to. So you can just let us know if you want us to do that. Um, I think that's good on the introductions. I'm going to pray, and then y'all can introduce yourselves and your vision, and then they're going to dive into the content. And we'll go from there. It's going to kind of be fluid, okay? So uh, and we'll leave some space at the end. Lord, thank you for the chance to be engaged in these topics for the next two hours. Lord, I do pray that what we've heard at a macro level from Russ would now be disseminated down into a personal level with these varying topics, and particularly with this one, Lord. We, we pray that you would use this conversation to help us as a congregation be more sensitive, uh, be more humble, uh, be more courageous in our crossing of ethnic and cultural lines uh, in our city. Lord, help us, please. We, we, need, we, we need help here. And thank you for Conrad and Candace and their, their wisdom. Thank you for calling them to Lexington. Thank you for calling me and my family to Lexington, that we might, in your uh, humorous providence, be in a city like this to, to work this stuff out. We need your help. God is now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, I just want to thank Will so much for having us here. And just thank you for joining us today. We have a heart that God has given us to love one another in such a way um, that he has given us a kind of an outline of what that looks like and what that looks like practically. And so I just feel honored. I know we both feel honored um, and very um, humble um, to be before you, to share our experiences and to just share some practical ways that we can love one another. So I want to give Conrad the, the floor so he can share. And we are going to both share our experiences and what God is doing um, in, the, in the community of Lexington and also what we're going to do as we work together um, as a body of Christ. Okay. Thanks, Candice. <clears throat> well, I'm the, I'm the teacher, so I'm gonna, if you're taking notes, feel free to get your pens ready. I want, <laughs> I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I want us to speak more anecdotally here shortly because I, I want to give a framework from the scriptures, and then, of course, we'll speak anecdotally. So first of all, while we're here in Lexington, Kentucky, is that our vision as a family is to be a catalyst of change to bring ethnic unity to the city. And if you understand science or just understand how a catalyst works, a catalyst tends to stimulate a reaction. Two things will react, but a catalyst, without being consumed, will speed up that reaction. And so there's a life that we live. We live a very multi-ethnic life. We live a Christian life multi-ethnically with all sort of nations in our Christian bubbles. And so it's familiar for us to be multi-ethnic. And it's unfamiliar for us to be more homogeneous. And so I want to kind of paint that picture there. So that with that vision being a catalyst, um, we are part of a ministry called Every Nation. Every Nation is a global ministry on six continents. Um, we have, we're in about over 75 countries with a, over 1,000 churches and campus ministries combined within those 75 countries. And we lead the UK work, uh, the Every Nation expression at University of Kentucky. Practically, our mission or our on-the-ground sort of work is something called, the mission we call it is, the offended restores the offender. The offended restores the offender. And what that looks like is this. God was the offended party. And notice he became like us to restore us who are the offenders. And that model lasts, has lasted over 2,000 and some odd years, of course. And to think, what if we emulated that same model? 
that the offended party in this unity journey was the one who opened their hand of fellowship to the offenders, the ones who caused the offense. And so that's something to think about, and that's the way we function, as in uh, the way we function. Okay, let me get into the scriptures real quick. Um, you don't have to turn there, but you can write the address down. Um, the address is Ephesians 4, chapter 1, uh, verse, Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it quickly, and then I'm going to go through this framework super quick, okay? All right, so Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says this, out of the English Standard Version, it says, I therefore, Paul speaking, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here's a framework. I'm going to give you five H's. Five H's. I'm going to say them and then I'm going to go through them again. History, humility, hunger, hurt, harmony. History, humility, hunger, hurt, harmony. Harmony. Now, first of all, when, here's Paul talking about there's a call that you have. There's walk worthy of this call. It's a past tense thing. A lot of what we're going through with unity, this is God's story. It's his story. It's not, it's not really our story. Though we sometimes in our culture fabricated trying to create unity, the reality is it roots in God wanting to unify with people. A sin issue that separated God from humanity. He wanted to unify. Think about Babel to Pentecost. Babel, where here's a separation because man in their own sin wanted to create a tower for themselves. Same words, same language. God comes down and separates that. Over the course of time, we see cultures established. He grabs one people group, the Hebrews, uh, where Abraham, Abraham comes from, on and on and on, all the way to the Jesus comes, and that opens the door. And then we see Jesus says, wait, 10 days later, the day of Pentecost is Jewish holiday. Here's now uh, nations from all over, all over the world here for the Pentecost. And we see language again and bringing unity this time. So we see a separation at one time in Babel, and we see a unity through the day of Pentecost. And through that, what can happen oftentimes, when we think about this history of this context, what happens often is that we love our Babel churches. Same language, same words, same ways. But Pentecost churches, not speaking necessarily denominationally, I'm speaking about the mess. It was messy. It was chaotic. They, there's two responses. Some people were all, and they were amazed, while others mocked. But what was happening, the Spirit of the Lord was sparking something in the day of Pentecost with all these nations. And so Babel does, our Pentecost churches are a lot more harder to manage. Bear with the word picture I'm using, that from Babel to Pentecost. We love our Babel churches because the same word, same language, same everything. Um, and then we see how we build our towers. And then here's Pentecost churches. It's much, much more difficult to manage. So that's history. Second thing is humility. In humility, here's Paul saying, do this with all humility, with gentleness, with patience. The reality of this, this journey is not fast. Because for one, we're dealing with the, which we'll talk about later, the human heart. And with the human heart, we don't change very quickly I mean, just because of the, what sin has done. And it's not fast, and no, we can't, nor can we fabricate it. And then the reality is, is that humility has to happen. Both parties have to go through a place of humility. Um, so for us to know and receive the benefits of God, God started the humility process, but we have to humble ourselves before him. So to think about that, what comes through that unity with his ways, his order, his desires, we, there's a humility here. Third thing, hunger. Um, if you look at the framework of the scriptures, hurt should come first, um, but yet it doesn't matter. The, the, the bookends, what I call it, the history and harmony are kind of the bookends. The hunger, uh, the, the humility, hunger, hurt, you can intermix it however. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But um, Paul says this, uh, be diligent to guard the unity of the spirit. Be to be diligent to guard, the, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So the word I use is hunger there. To think about there's an eagerness, there's a hunger that we must have to maintain this unity. God has already established it. No, there's no, no Jew or Gentile, there's a dividing wall of hostility that's been broken. There's a reality that we're all one in Christ, but we have to be eager or hungry to maintain that unity. Third, uh, fourth thing, hurt. Hurt makes reference to, <laughs> I like to use the word picture of porcupine. Sin has created these quills in us that if you pet me the right way, oh, we can be friends all day. You pet me the wrong way, I'll poke you. <laughs> Threaten me, can't even get close to me. Think about our humanity, how often we can act like that. Pet me the right way, keep it politically correct, make sure it sounds good. No hurt, no pain, no poking. Threaten, threaten, or do, any, do something, rub the wrong way, there's a poking there. Well, the way this, the, um, the scriptures identify this, it says, bearing with one another. 
in love. And so I use the word hurt to kind of to, 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 to refer to that. We bear with one another. How often, of course, those married, those soon to be married, those that have been born in a family, you know what it's like when we're having to bear with one another. There's hurt that comes with, the, with that process. So the fourth thing is hurt. Then the fifth thing here is harmony. Notice those last two verses, verses four through six. One, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, one, he's in all and through all, in, uh, in all and through all, and of all. And so the idea of being one in Christ, consider John 17, John praying that, Lord, may there be one like you and the Father and I are one. There's a oneness there, this idea of being one. But the word picture I want to give to you is this idea of a concert. Well, think about music. There's one conductor that everybody's submitting to, but all these different sounds. From the, from the brass section to the wind sections to the percussion section, but they're all submitted to one conductor. And that's one thing I believe that exalts Jesus through this process. If we go on the journey towards unity, it's a journey. This is not easy. This is not something that we can fabricate and make quick to happen. But if we go on the journey from understanding that this is God's story, it's history, it's his story, then we go on a process of recognizing we have to humble ourselves through this journey in all of our relationships, humbling ourselves, realizing that you know there needs to be an eagerness or a hunger. Let me retell this real quick. Hunger, sometimes you think about this, a sign of sickness it's sometimes a loss of appetite. If we lose our appetite, sometimes it's going to be a sign of sickness. And think about the body of Christ, or sometimes even our own worlds. Let's confess, sometimes we just don't want to do this. We're not hungry for it, for the unity. So anyways, hunger, uh, hunger hurt, like porcupines, and, but the ultimate aim and the ultimate goal is harmony. God wants us to play one sound or this one concert. Ever been in a concert or, or orchestra, you see, you're watching an orchestra event, and they hit that note just right. And all these sounds just hit it just right. And what, ri what happens, the, the riveting nature of that sound of music, of all these multifaceted sounds hitting that note just right. What if the body of Christ were so? What if the body of Christ walked in that manner to where we played that sound, that played that music? Well, the world would respond and say, oh, yeah, you guys get it. You get it. You get this unity thing. So those are the, the five frames I kind of want to start with. Um, to get us sort of on this ball rolling is that it's history, har humility, hunger, hurt, harmony. Okay, and there's four more H's. We'll talk about those here in a minute. So what is, let me let me tell a quick story with out of Acts chapter 10 and 11. I'm going to cap it with this, and then we'll pa pass the ball over to uh, to Will. So in the if you study Acts chapter 10 and 11, what's interesting is the story of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is now getting this vision. And he's this vision, he's a God-fearing man, the Jewish people love him, God, God's, uh, the, this angel speaks to him and says, hey, go send for this man named Peter. All the while, Peter, a couple of verses later, is having his vision on the roof. He's hungry, he's having a vision, he's seeing unclean animals come down on a, on a blanket, comes down three times, God says, kill and eat Peter. He says, nope, I don't eat that stuff. Um, and, and God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. So Peter's pondering, 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 pondering. the men from Cornelius come to Peter's house, where Peter's staying, and Peter knew that he had to go because the Holy Spirit told him, go with these men. He goes to Cornelius' house. First thing comes out of Peter's mouth when he gets to Cornelius' house. You know that I'm a Hebrew and I ain't supposed to be in your home. It ain't, I ain't, this ain't supposed to happen. But the Lord dealt with me. And why did you call me here? Cornelius says, well, I had this vision. This is what happened. And Peter starts preaching. The power of God falls on that home. And everybody in that house gets touched by the Holy Spirit. And then they go back and tell their friends, the, the, the circumcised believers that were with Peter, go back and tell their friends, and their friends will say, what did you just do, Peter? You know you're not supposed to go into a Roman centurion's house. What are you doing? And they start telling the story, and the, they all respond, and they're all amazed. Now think about that. You can read between the lines, go meditate on that. Something to think about through this process. Peter's culture had to get dealt with. What do you think about it? He had to come to a place of humility that here's God dealing, I believe, his culture. He'd been so trained to not eat these kind of food. God is now changing the script, telling a different story. Cornelius' heart's being tenderized and prepared for all of this. But then, um, we see, we, and then we see the powerful experience that happened, and we see even how his people, when Peter went back to his people, they pushed back and said, what did you just do? Again, culture, culture, culture. But the beauty of God doing the work that he did. This is a God story. This is God's journey. And so we have to put it in that place. This is God's story. Okay, pass it over to Will, and then we'll uh, go from there. All right, let's breathe there and see if there's any questions about that sort of framework of content. Just any questions of clarity or for further insights? We're going to get into some, like, fleshing this out. 
Okay. Well, you can think about it. We'll have another time for questions later. But all right. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> what I'm what I'm going to share is some. I'm going to take all five of those and and package them into my own experience in navigating these waters of, of pursuing diversity as a majority person. Okay. And so what I'm going to share has predominantly to do with my relationship with the black community and friends in the black community. But the same principles could be overlaid into our Native American, into Asian, into, and honestly, into socioeconomic classes. It could be a lot of different things, some of the same principles. But I think because of America's history between white and black, that is the place we got to go to. That's where it's most crystallized, okay? It's, it, there could be a case between America and Japan. There could be a... Uh, a, a, a thing there, and I, and I would I'd, I'd actually encourage you to read uh, some of the ways World War II veterans who have come to Christ have responded to their Japanese captors. Go see Unbroken. Uh, go see both of them. Go see the Hollywood version Unbroken, and then go see the one that just came out. That kind of is the second part of that story, where that guy goes back and he offers grace and repentance to his captors. Okay. Now, that same scenario, though, is really embedded in our American culture as it pertains to white and black. And that's where I'm going to go with my, my journey, okay? And the question that, that had emerged for me, I don't know, a decade ago was that Danielle and I have this ongoing battle with toothpaste at our house. And she likes to squeeze it from the dead middle, and, you know, and it just backs up to the end and backs out the front. And I like to squeeze it from the end, right? And, and it's all about it's all about efficiency. So what happens is over, over the month, I have to take my toothbrush and I have to scoot the toothpaste to the front. But I scoot it so tight, whenever you turn the lid off, it just oozes out, right? And I like that illustration because the question we have to ask here is when I'm pushed up to the limits of these cultural issues, what is it that oozes out from me? Okay, so for instance, when Ferguson hit Michael Brown's death, okay, and the Ferguson fires, what oozed out of most of white Americans was not love, compassion, understanding. It was fact-checking. My own art. Let's get the facts. Let's figure out what happened. Let's, let's figure out, you know, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, and all this stuff. What oozed out was some pretty nasty stuff on both sides. But from the white community, I started seeing, whoa, there's a lot we need to learn here. Um, so this is where my – so uh, a couple of stories for me that have just helped me go from – this history, humility, hunger, a hurt to harmony, here's a couple of them. I uh, went with a friend up in Cincinnati, and this is going to be one of our applications. This is a, this is a, a majority, uh, majority, majority room right now. We've got a couple of Asian friends here, and we've got a couple of African-American friends, but the rest of us, uh, unless you've got some you know, Italian or uh, uh, Irish heritage, we're all you know, white Anglo, right? So I went to the Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati with a friend of mine, an African-American friend of mine. And uh, we went through, the, went through the, 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 uh, the museum. And you should go to it. Uh, it's one of our applications. Take a, take a road trip and go with a person of color. Okay? It's important. Because they see it from a whole different lens than the majority culture does. And they have a display there when you walk up to it, and it's the Declaration of Independence, which says, you know, uh, all men are created equal, and all the, all the stuff that our Constitution and Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence has about made in the image of God, uh, inalienable rights, everybody's created equal, all that. And right above it is a picture of the first 16 presidents of the United States. And what you do is you take the pictures and you flip them over, and it says slave owner, slave owner, slave owner, slave owner, slave owner. Fifteen out of the first 16 U.S. presidents were slave owners that had were part of implementing and we're even writing the document that says all men are created equal. Now, this is important because when our people, when our friends of color see the slogans, make America great again, okay, we have to understand what that initial reaction is. It's not we don't, they don't want America to be great. It's like, again, it's the word again. Well, which America are we referring to here? Uh, that one where those guys own slaves? Or just 60 years ago where Rosa Parks had to sit in a different seat on a bus. Which one are we talking about? And it, until the white majority understands that history, it, we're, the, the conversation's dead in the water if we're trying to act like the, the ground's neutral. It's just not neutral. That, and, and, our, and our Constitution, bless its heart, uh, betrays us here. <laughs> we have not lived by that. We have not, much less our Bible, right? Uh, so that's, that's one. The other, the other is, and it hit me, 
Uh, you know, I, I, I have family members, and, and this is challenging. I don't know if some of you in the majority culture feel this way. One of the most challenging things is to sit with my white family members and listen to them talk about Ferguson or Philando Castile or presidential candidates or on and on and on. It's, it's, it's hard, and I'm finding my nerve more in those to speak up and say, I think that's an ignorant statement. I think that's a racist statement. I think that's blah, blah, blah. But what I, what, I, what I hear a lot of majority of people say is, well, I, I didn't own slaves. What's the deal? Can't we just move past it? Can't we just move on? And this is the illustration. As a pastor, I'm deal, I deal with all the time. Every week, without fail, for the last five years in my office, a young or old woman, it's, it's across the board, will come into my office, and she'll come in and she'll say, I need some help in this issue in my life. And I'm to the point now, every time a woman comes in, about my second question is, who abused you? Just, that's, that's the narrative that's it's coming out. Is, is sexual abuse, physical abuse, psychological abuse. Okay, and she says, it was my husband. It was my uncle. It was a pastor. Okay, that, that's a horrible scenario that you can understand. Okay, but inevitably, every one of those women come into my office, and the way they respond to me is very defensive, very guarded, very protected. I don't know if I can trust this man. Uh, why? I represent... Strong male authority. And their experience with strong male authority isn't a good one. It's got a history. And it's probably historical to their mom, to their granddad, mom, and on down. It does mean no good to look at that abused woman and go, I didn't beat you. I didn't abuse you. Why are you treating me this way? Does that make sense? And I think that same conversation has to happen in these, yes, you may have not owned slaves. Your parents may not have owned slaves. Your grandparents probably did. Your great-grandparents probably did. And that story is, does no good for us in the conversation to say, what's the big deal? Can we just get over it? No, we're not going to just get over that kind of history. We're going to have to work hard to work through that. So I'm sitting at lunch with a very dear friend of mine, um, and we're talking about work. She's an African-American lady, a beautiful lady. And uh, she, uh, she starts talking about the way her boss jokingly was treating her. And uh, I got to be on time, and uh, he, man, he's making me turn all these reports in. I was like, oh, he's, he's kind of like a slave driver, isn't he? And I caught myself, oh, my gosh. And in the moment, she didn't blink an eye. She just went on. We had, we're friends. But it hit me. I just used a word that was associative of something very difficult in her heritage. So I called her later that day, and I said, I need you to forgive me for being insensitive. I need you to forgive me for being uncaring and unaware. And she, bless her heart, was so kind and gracious, like, I didn't even think twice about it. But now that you think about it, yeah, I'd probably use a different phrase. You know? <laughs> but that showed, that showed the graciousness on that side of her, the offended, offering to the offender grace. I needed that. But I praised God in that moment that in my own journey, listen, my dad was one of the most rabid bigots I've ever been around. My father hated anybody that wasn't white, upper middle class. He hated them. I mean, and then certainly didn't like people of color. So I grew up in a home that was violently uh, prejudicial, prejudicial. And then on down to his grandparents and uncles and all that. So when that moment happened with my friend, I felt a great deal of redemption in my own heart that I caught myself. And then I felt so much remorse that I, I got still a lot to grow here. I, I need to and for my friend to be that gracious was incredible. Uh, one, one more story, and, and I think this gets to the whys, it, understanding the whys. So particularly with the African-American culture. Listen, uh, my one of my daughters went through just what is, what is, what is unique about African-American women's hair? That is, that is, there's a story behind that, right? And, and, and some, don't touch my hair. There's something magical about this scenario. The whole pa uh, matriarchal culture of African-American. Don't make fun of Big Mama. There's, there's a reason why Big Mama is important to the African-American culture. The fatherlessness culture of the African is not just as simple as deadbeat drug dealers. You've got to know the history that white slave guys took their fathers out and moved them around, cheated on their wives. Like they, there's a reason fatherlessness is a part of the African-American thing. It's not just as simple as they're selling drugs and they ought, to, they ought to not try to have so many babies. It's just not that simplistic. There's a story that we have to understand. In the majority culture, we do not have those problems. So when Trayvon Martin was killed and, and President Obama, 
Which, by the way, when President Obama was elected, I wept like a baby. I, did, I don't agree with 90% of his politics. I don't agree with 90% of Trump's either, but just to be fair here. Uh, that was a magical moment in our history. Okay? And it was just, it was to be celebrated. But I was shocked when Trayvon Martin was killed, and y'all remember this, and he came out and he said, uh, that could have been my son. Man, white America went crazy. And it, I think it showed the ignorant divide. I have a 13-year-old son. I have never once told him to take his hoodie off when he walked into a, a store. Never once. Never even thought about it. I have black friends who constantly have to tell their sons, keep your hands out of your pockets, take your hoodie off when you walk into the store. You just have to. And they just kind of say, it's the way we are in our culture. You have to. Do. I, I am now beginning to understand why that's true. And it's not just true because of some uh, brokenness that exists in the African-American community. That is true, but it's historical in its nature as well. And, and the majority culture understanding that can create some harmony there. Okay, so those are some of my stories. Yes. You know, I really, I really enjoy the fact that Will brought up the relational context that he had with people that were different than him and how that connection that he had with that relationship helped him to be able to see things in a different way than he may not have before. And so as believers, I believe and we believe that in order for us to have a proper context of God's heart, we have to look at it through the lens of the kingdom of God. Because when you see Jesus speaking about the things that we should do and how we should act, I was looking up the, the times that he said church, and he said church like three times. But he said the kingdom of God like over 70 times because the kingdom of God is a completely different way of acting, behaving, and going about how we treat one another. And so when it comes to looking at our brother or our sister who does not look different than us, we cannot look according to just the mere outside, the mere flesh. We have to look according to the spirit of who they are. And so our heart is with the church because we are the ones that have been given the answer. The world has a way of looking at, I think, uh, what's talked about, the tolerance and what it looks like to uh, come together and appear as though we are unified. But the scripture says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So if it does not start with us first, then how can the world even have an idea or an iota what this is supposed to be like? And so I want to first say that it's not just white America. It's also black America as well. We both have things in our heart that we need to yield to God. And so when it comes to relationships, it first starts with our relationship with God and to ask the hard questions. And probably a couple years ago, I had to ask uh, God hard questions about my own heart. Because in my mind, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and the school that I attended was downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I graduated with ethnicities from all over the world. And in my mind, I thought I had no issues with anyone that was different than me. And then I moved here to Lexington. And I literally had a culture shock because I personally had never been around, honestly, so many white people in my life. I had never experienced that before. And so it was the first time that I really had to say, okay, I feel uncomfortable a lot. Why am I feeling uncomfortable? And really seeking God's face and saying, what are some things in my heart that are keeping me from being able to open up in a way that I thought that I would be able to? And the first thing that I had to do was recognize the idea of other, which we've heard talked about. And I think sometimes we downplay it like, oh, you know, I'm not racist or I don't, I don't, I don't do these things. But the things that we're doing are the ways that we're thinking. Are they a kingdom mindset or is it a mindset that connects us to make us feel better than the culture? Because we can compare ourselves to the culture and say, well, I don't do that. I don't think those ways. But no, God did not come so that we could be a better version of ourselves. He came that we would be like him. So when we think, okay, how do I think about those that are different than me? What are my thoughts? And like you said, when the toothpaste pops out saying, oh my gosh, those people, oh, they don't get this or they don't get that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. God checked my heart and said, no, it is us. It's not they, it's us when it comes to the kingdom of God. And so one thing the Lord began to do in challenging me was to be vulnerable in those relationships with people that did not look like me. 
And it challenged me, but it was one of those things that has changed me in such a way that when I look at people, I don't look at them according to what they look like or what kind of music they listen to or what neighborhood they, they, they live in, but what is the, the, the nature of their heart? What is their heart? And so Kelly Bradley, you guys are familiar with her. She attends this church. She is one of the covenant sisters that I have been able to make that when the Lord challenged me to be vulnerable with those that are different than me, I said, you know what, God? Send me. Send me people that I can do that. And the amazing thing about God is when you seek him, you will find him. The scripture says, when I saw him, he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. And what's interesting to me is there are fears that we have that we don't realize we have until we confront it with them. And so I was talking to a, a lady, an older lady, and she was an older white lady, and she said there was a situation that happened where a family member was abused by a black American man. And because of that experience, she had a fear of black men. She felt like black men were savage. She would never articulate that, but for me, she felt like she could be vulnerable and sharing that with me. And she said, you know what, it, it scares me because I am a believer. And I know that this, is, this can't be uh, all people because we know that what causes a person to behave that way? It's not the color of their skin. It's sin. That's what causes a person to, to, to steal and take away because that is, that's the character of Satan. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And so when we say, okay, uh, evil is embodied in the skin color of a person or poverty is embodied in the skin color of a person, we're seeing things from a lower dimension. We're not looking at a kingdom dimension. We're looking at things at a lower dimension. And, and that is when it's time for us to reflect. And I don't know if we'll have time. I hope we will, a little bit of time, even on your own, to reflect. What are those fears? What are those things that you've heard that when you're driving somewhere and you see something, and I'm not talking about, you know, there's some things that are discerning that you know, I don't feel safe here. But there are other things that say, I see a, a group of black people. Let me lock my door. Because <laughs> they might try to hurt me. The question, where, where is this coming from? Is this coming from something that you have heard or even something that you may have experienced? Because the thing is, God will mess up your theology because your eyes will trick you. Because God is wanting you to look more than just the flesh. Because the scripture says the flesh counts for nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. So if you truly want life, you need to look according, my brothers and my sisters, according to what is it that God is showing you through his spirit, not according to your flesh. And when you begin to do that, and you begin to cry out to God and say, God, I repent. I repent. I, I, I have not looked at my brother or my sister according to the kingdom way. Forgive me. And God, give me a heart's desire to make those connections, those honest vulnerable heart connections with those people who don't look like me. But then I will say this, when you begin to connect with people that don't look like you, you'll begin to find that you are a lot more like them than you really think that, you, that you're not. That's right. That there's a heart level, there's a humanity that we all share, this desire that we have for connection, to be loved, to be known. And when you connect to that deep part of yourself, then you're beginning to look according to the way God has intended for us to see things, and that is according to the Spirit. That's good. That's good. That's good, Katie. So let me give some more framework to some of this, to where there's more H's I need to add. <laughs> These H's are, and this is kind of an application section, and we'll use this to sort of, and you guys ad-lib if there's anything that you need to add in. Um, it'll kind of lead us into a question-answer time. Um, so here's, I call these kind of the sub-H's. So sometimes when I'm doing this without notes, I'll kind of say there's history, humility, hunger, hurt, harmony. But then what Candace was referencing, this is a heart issue, H-E-A-R-T. This is a heart issue. This is the first of the four sub-H's, heart issue. A Hebraic way of looking at the heart is this way. The heart embodies the mind, the will, the emotions, the appetites, the passions, the desires, your, your memory, your conscience, everything about you. In other words, the word is lave. The Hebrew word is lave. El is a, got a lament and a bet. What that refers to, those two letters, the authority of the, the, the control center of the house or the home or the who we are. The heart is the control center of who we are. Uh, Solomon talks about this. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the 
issues of life. Um, David says, I hide your word in my heart so I don't sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure but by living according to your word? On and on and on. So we, if we see the heart from, not from this Greek-Roman world where we compartmentalize everything, we put everything on nice little boxes, God who, was, who kind of expressed himself hebraically, he was all whole. So this focus on the heart was so critical for, is in God's story. It's all about the heart. It's all, always been about the heart. When Abraham believed God, when he was just coming out of war, and he's thinking, well, Eleazar, my, the chief servant in my house, is going to be the one who's going to take over. The guy's like, no, you're going to have a son out of your own womb that's going to be. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that place in his heart, he said, I trust you, Daddy. Okay, you're the one who called me out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I trust you. So it's a heart issue. And our heart is very complex. I see why it's deceitful above all things. <laughs> because you think about, if you look at the complexity, you're like, my mind can say this, but my desires say that. My, my will says this, but then my appetites say that. That's, that's messy. So the only thing that stabilizes the human heart is the word of God, which is God's kingdom authority. This is what David said. The only thing that, David didn't say those words, but I summarized it that way. The only thing that stabilizes the human heart is God's word, period. That's it. You can't do psychology, you can't do anything else from the world. Let me speed up a little bit. So because of this heart issue, healing is required. Healing, second, the second sub-H, healing is required. And the healing, the only answer to the sin problem of humanity is the gospel. And Russ has been talking about this the last three days. That's the only answer. Stop trying to do all the other stuff the world is doing. The only answer is the word of God and God's, the gospel, period. That's it. That's it. That's it. Healing is required. And this is a sin issue at core. Um, the third of the four sub-H's is, this is hard. This is hard. This is hard. Healing, I'm oh, sorry, heart healing hard. This is just hard. It's just hard. It's not something easy. Notice he says eager to maintain the unity. There's a unity that God established. This is Ephesians, back to Ephesians 4. It's a unity that God established. It's his way. It's his story. It's all about his agenda. And if we could do it, uh, we would have done it without him. But since we can't do it, we have to do it by his spirit. You can't do it without him. You can't do it. He's right. Can't do it without him. Good right. Thanks for that. But the beauty of this is saying, can we submit and yield to the hardship of this journey, his lordship, his authority, his kingdom way, the way that his word says to do it? And the, and the fourth of the four, uh, this, last, this last H of all nine, last H, um, hope. Hope. Amen. We are the answer to the world. So every time that the world engages us in this conversation, in this mass communication, mass setting, and we're finding ourselves watching television, participating in the social media alongside of them, making comments to articles, reading the articles, we are being mocked every single time, church. We are being mocked. Because we alone have the answer. No one else has the answer. So why are we looking to the world and trying to have dialogue with them in the way in their conversation about it? I can understand if we're reaching someone, that's fine. I understand relating and understanding what the conversation is, but the reality is we have the answer. We're the ones to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're the ones that have to bear with one another in love. We're the ones who have to humble ourselves. We're the ones that have to go through this journey. We're the ones who know the gospel and have received the gospel, that he's given us the right to become children of God, not born of a husband's will or human's decision, but born of God. We're the one who has the spirit in us, the deposit that guarantees what's to come. We're the one with the identity of Christ, that he's perfecting a good work in us until the day of Christ's return. We are the ones who has all of that. Why are we letting the world mock us? So I'm, I'm speaking now as a commanding officer to say, Rise up. Rise up. Will we, will you fight? Will you put on the armor of God and start deflecting the, those darts that the enemy's trying to bring to, to, to cause? It's, it's a flaming dart. It's wanting to explode and distort all the plans that God has for us. The gospel shoes, to put on those shoes and put that belt of truth. What, let's put on our armor and let's begin to fight this battle. And it starts with us. It's not just a black white issue. You know, this is a heart, of course, a heart issue. We have to deal with our own hearts and our own relationships and our own families. We have to rise up with our own marriages, with our own parenting, with our own relationship with the Lord. And that will, product of that will take us to a place where any relationship that comes our way, it's just going to be a product of stuff we've been doing behind the scenes. All of what we do today, you guys haven't played yet. It's tonight, right? 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock tonight. All that training behind the scenes, most of us never see it. We just see game time. And we just rejoice in playing game time. But the question becomes is, what are they doing behind the scenes that is having them to be the team that they are now? And the same question for you, and the world's kind of looking at us, is like, man, y'all suck. <laughs> y'all keep losing this battle all the time. And I don't mean to be harsh if I am, but that's the reality. We suck at this. So the question is, what are we doing behind the scenes to play a better game? We're not playing a good game right now, church. We're just not. And so um, 
Let's, so, uh, let's stop there and see if there's questions, and then maybe we'll give the applications to those other four good, agents. Yeah. All right, questions, and then we'll give some applications. And we can email you these because a lot of them are linked based. I understand that a lot has, a lot of uh, what you've been saying has to happen in individual hearts. But since we're here as a group from largely one congregation, is there something that as a body we should be doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give some of those in a second. Okay. Yeah, yeah. good question. Yeah, I guess I look at it uh, in an academic thing. My roommate, my first year at the University of California, was a black guy. And he became one of my best tax clients. But I view the racial thing as much a social economic thing as it is a color thing. I mean, I think if, if I see my neighbor who's an African-American physician, I don't lock my doors, right? I'm not afraid of him because he basically has socioeconomic status as kind of, kind of become one with the every other race at that income level, for lack of a better term. It, to me, that's a difficulty, because I work with right. in a high school ministry with students that are having trouble passing classes, and they're mainly African-American. Mm -hmm. And their socioeconomic class is really what is a big problem for them to be able to kind of attain things in life. I can agree with that. Um, let me paint a quick word picture to kind of tie to what you're talking about. Um, I'll try to be simple with this. I believe there's three spirits in the world. I don't mean to be weird here, but I believe there's God's spirit, angelic spirits, and the human spirit. I believe the angelic spirits are good spirits that are submitted to God's way and demonic spirits. So three core spirits. And I, the way I kind of communicate this, I believe our human spirit is like a radio. Its only intention is to broadcast. Only it's designed to broadcast. Yes, we have our human reason, but I believe there's two voices, two radios, two frequencies. We can be hearing from God, doing like Jesus says. I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only say what my Father tells me to say. There's only one station that he listened to. And then when the other station came in, he said, it is written. It is written. It is written. So I believe the spirit realm is a spoken realm. So with this human radio, I think what's happened is that the dialogue of the world that has a demonic influence, demonic, some parts of a demonic influence, versus the dialogue of the church is overlapping and we have all these different challenges. So we've listened to a lot of what, what the references you made, just all these different conversations about race and ethnicity and this, this, and that. And some of it's been a mixture of stations overlapping, but then this core focus of what does God's station say about this matter? In other words, when David was going out to fight, he would say, Lord, are you going to give this people over to me? He was trying to tune into God's station. What's your intention? What's your heart? So that when he broadcast, the human spirit being a radio, when he broadcast, he was like, this is what God is going to do. Or when Jesus broadcast, he said, thus saith the Lord. Or, sorry, verily I say unto you. He was God. He, was, he said it different than the prophets. But the reality is what I'm getting at is there's a lot of voices in the spirit realm that have spoken. And again, I don't know your lens. You're not making a framework, your theological positions on any of this. But the reality is what is that station that we or you and I are listening to? Is it God's station or is it the other kingdom's station? And there's sometimes overlap. That's where sometimes our human reason gets in the way. We're starting to figure, trying to figure stuff out. But then here's Jesus spending that time to say, Lord, tune me into your station. God, I want your station alone. That's all I want to hear. Mm -hmm. So to your point of this idea of socioeconomic, whatever, these are all facets of the journey. Yes, it's facets. But the key thing is in our own worlds in our own convictions we have to really wrestle with what station am i listening to in this journey to where in his context he's saying socioeconomic that's not a race is not a factor here it's socioeconomic while in for some of us the other context there is definitely distinct ethnic divisions there's distinct and i don't mean things. to interrupt you but you know for a short time <laughs> yeah, but i'm going to no. No, I don't mean what I'm going to. so this this is good this i is would good. If, i would if you are friends with you say your neighbors as a physician yeah. okay i would inquire if you would ask him do you feel Different. Do you feel other because of your ethnicity, or do you feel connected with the culture? Because I have people in my family who were chemists and physics and doctors and, you know, in government, all of these things. But that positional place that we hold in our culture does not necessarily mean that that person feels that they are connected to the greater um, community of, of America. And so a position that a person holds does not mean that in a core of who they are feels connected. So that, I don't know if that would be scary for you to ask him that question, but I, I know your perception is that. So but that, I that, that, that's a great application. I'm just going to give the application. Under the hard, uh, one of our applications for you to do is to go find someone like that, like Jim, like you said, and, and ask those kind of questions. Here's what I perceive you think about this, or here's what I think I think about this. 
Let's talk about that. And if you've got a safe friend, like I have some of those that I, that I engage that with, uh, that gets to the hard. Like, where have you had a hard interaction with someone different than you? Go vocalize that. Like, that one, it's like, I, I, I went into the store, and I immediately locked my door because I had a visual of someone I was intimidated by. Express that, and then have the person that represents that entity speak back. And they're going to say, well, I had this interaction with a white guy one time, and this is what it did. That sort of interplay, particularly in the kingdom, is incredibly healing. Right. Awesome. So that, that, just to go with that. All right, let's, let's for time's sake, let's, let's, let's click off some of these applications. Um, I'll just kind of lead out, and then if you want to add something to them. We're going to sit, if you want to, uh, e- just email me, go to the church website, and if you want this, I'll just send it to you, okay? Um, the heart. Uh, repentance was something we talked a lot about. This, that is really a star- the starting places. Where, where do you need to repent? And maybe some of the things we talked about just led you, I, I need to repent here. I didn't, I didn't know I thought that way. <clears throat> now I realize I'm thinking wrong about that. Just repent. Journaling. This was something Candace really talked a lot about. And she mentioned this before or earlier. Uh, what, what is God telling you in these moments? Uh, you may even have written down some of those things now. Uh, hopefully this afternoon, tomorrow, and worship you will create some space for you to actually reflect on that. Uh, I've gotten in the habit of doing this a lot. Um, I left my journal upstairs. I can show it to you. It's just loaded. Uh, I hope nobody ever reads my, my journal uh, because it's just loaded with, man, I am screwing up here so bad. Uh, Lord, I, I don't know what to do here. Help me. You know, those kind of things. Uh, second, under the healing, we said several things here. Uh, and mostly it was under take a trip. <laughs> Go see something that's outside of your framework. I already mentioned the Freedom Center up in uh, Cincinnati. There's an Underground Railroad Museum in Maysville. John Rankin's house, who was a Presbyterian uh, minister, uh, an abolitionist. Uh, this John Parker's house in Ripley, Ohio. You want to say anything about those? Yeah, so they live, uh, they live next to each other. So John Parker, the, the free slave, he would take slaves from the Kentucky border to the Ohio border. So his house is at the coast. Up the hills, John Rankin, who was the Presbyterian minister, they'd work together. They were, they were basically conductors on the Underground Railroad. And their house is there. It, it's, a it's a fascinating story to see how those guys, and what those guys, when you talk about neighbor love, yeah. sacrifice, what those guys, I mean, the, yes, what the slaves had to do to get over there, but what those white guys had to do to free them. That's right. Amazing. Um, uh, one of the things we do as a family, and historically, uh, during Black History Month and MLK's uh, birthday particularly, is we, so like my son, he's got an assignment to do Friday. He's got to write a five-paragraph par- five uh, essay on an on a African-American hero. And he's, he's probably going to try to choose somebody athletic. I'm trying to, you know, uh, <laughs> point him a little more substantive than Kobe Bryant or, you know, whoever that is. But it's okay. What, what, but what I'm doing as a dad is trying to, uh, help him to understand a history different than his. Okay, uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, our, our 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 plan as a family has always been: we always watch the "I Have a Dream" speech, and then we uh, our our kids are responsible for memorizing a line from it. You know, uh, something some of the. But again, just trying to get them out of a of a of a way of thinking, and, and so, so you can. Uh, that's an idea. We got a list of books and resources here. I will say, and I'll point this out, you can go to Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Revisionist History uh, podcast and download the one on Brown versus Education and the Birmingham statue. It will blow your mind how much history has been revised to how the majority culture interpreted the Brown versus Education Supreme Court case, which integrated schools. And then there's a statue in Birmingham that's legendary about a black boy being attacked by a dog. That's not at all what happened. And how the majority culture spun those two historical events is, is jeopardized, it jeopardized the, the racial unity that, that we could have had. Go listen to Malcolm Gladwell's stuff on that. It's really good. Um, all right. And then hope. Uh, Let me tell a story to hope, please. Because uh, Jimmy Lace is here in the room. And, um, all right. So you get the last word. Get the last word. This so is it. Hope. Hope is about prayer, really saying, will we let the Holy Spirit minister to our hearts through this process. And so uh, in our ministry, I, in, I talked about kind of Babel churches, Babel world, Pentecost churches, Pentecost. In the Babel churches, we have a tendency, like draws the like. That's kind of the nature, same language, same words, like draws the like. 
And so I started getting this burden and said, Lord, will you send me some white sons? I was wanting some sons in the faith that I can walk with that were different than me. Send me some white sons. And all the while, Jimmy Lacey here in the room, is saying, he's praying for black mentors. Um, <laughs> and so one day we connected. We, he shows me his journal. And he says, he wrote a, a little note I think you had at the top of your journal. It's got black mentors. The Lord has asked for black mentors. We have spent hours together over the last, I don't know how long. This has been now, almost a year now? At least a year. Just hours together and just to see what he does in his ministry. And, the, and he hears my heart. I mean, it's a beautiful because the hope is we've got to say, Lord, you're the initiator of all this. So we can think all this intellectually. We can think all of this and try to create all the practical strategies. But the reality is, just like Peter, his heart had to be softened. Just like Cornelius, he had to be prepped for that journey. And if we don't allow or tune into God's story of prepping us, particularly for us, we pray, then some of it we're just fabricating again, trying to do just like the world's doing. And so the challenge is will we pray so that we can be the hope to the world that we're to be. Any questions before we're out of time? Any quick questions for anyone? Okay, you guys have been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, oh, yes. You can finish the order. No, but you're just saying just as a group, you know, what to do. Um, and I don't know, I'm just a big component of prayer, man. I think if you get a couple, couple more ladies together and y'all just pray, like, what does this look like for us to be a blessing to those that are different than us? Um, there's a ministry, um, Manual Baptist, they have a ministry called Step by Step. Um, and it is a ministry that um, works with teenage moms. Um, and what they do is they, they have opportunity to connect with them and do things with them. And there are a lot of the ladies there that are black American young girls. And that's a great opportunity to reach out. Um, and it's, you know, socially, economically different, maybe possible than you. And also, you know, ethnically different than you. Um, but there are also, you know, young white girls as well uh, there also. Um, but that's a great ministry to be able to connect in a way. Because sometimes when, when people are younger than us, it, it, it makes it feel a little less um, scary, I guess. Um, but it can give, um, that's a practical way, step by step is a great ministry. Um, but I, I would love to pray. Pray and then we'll be done. Pray. Okay. Awesome. Father God, we are humbled um, to know that you would consider us, God, that this message that you've given us of uh, the ministry of reconciliation, that you've called us to it, and you've empowered us to do it. God, I pray that every single person in this room would know that you are calling them to hire than the things that maybe, um, even if they're thinking when they came in this room, God, that there is a place and a position that you have for them to love at a level that can only be achieved uh, by, your, by your presence and by your spirit in their life. And so, God, I pray that something that was said today, and even this over this weekend, Father, that they would be encouraged to know that you are going before them, that you are the forerunner, mm -hmm. that everything that you're, that you're seeking, that they're seeking, you have already done. You've already done it before them. And so, God, I pray that they would yield afresh to you, that they would open their hearts to you, and even repent of those things that they know um, do not represent the kingdom of God. I pray your blessings and your peace in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So email me if you want the notes. Um, to your point, Karen, part of the reason we're doing this conference is to move these conversations forward as a church. Uh, so more to come on this as a congregation. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks.